Hello, listeners. Clint here. Before we begin our conclusion to the saga of Dr Murder, I wanted to formally apologise for some of the vulgar language you may have heard on last week's episode. This was the result of an unexpected guest slash cat exploder on the podcast. We received a string of complaints, first one, then another one. It was unacceptable. And we here at the Cinema Society do not condone such crude vocabulary. Needless to say, it shan't be happening again. And we really, really hope you continue to listen. Previously on One from the Vaults. Any distinguishing features? Gunk. He's got a lot of gunk in his eyes. I asked you to make a car. A sadistic tale of a well-regarded physician who becomes a killer. It's like radio but for tosses. Doesn't sound like something many people would actually be interested in. The role of Dr. Murder went to veteran of stage and war, Victor Spink. I too will have my revenge. Only for her own body to be incinerated moment later. The curious cupboard of Dr. Murder hit cinemas. Reportedly due to cramps. And the less said about don't mind me, ducky, the better. Why Spaniard? I had a very harrowing incident on the A666, if you must know. You run over me cat. I don't ever want to see you again. Good riddance. I'm allergic to pie. They are both moist and crusty. It isn't meant to be funny, actually. Welcome back, fellow cinephiles. I got my boys with me, Warren and Clint. Please stop saying that I'm your boy, Rufus. I'm actually doing very good, actually. I didn't ask. And how are you feeling, Rufus? In yourself? Do you mean about Doreen? Can we not use her name in my shed, please? This is meant to be a safe space. Everything reminds me of her. Well, she's not an easy woman to forget. Everything still smells like her. Well, she was pungent. Everything I own has been set on fire. Well, she was a convicted arsonist. Can you stop? I'm feeling pretty triggered here. Why, did you not get much sleep last night? Uh, that's not what it means. And how are you coping with the confirmation of Damien's deceasedness? I've done everything a man can do to mourn his beloved puss. Did you fashion a crucifix out of a pair of lollipop sticks? Naturally. And whack it in garden? With his name on, aye. Did you say a few words? Oh, yeah. I swore vengeance for his brutal death and then I ate a tin of his favourite meat in commemoration. You ate cat food? No, corned beef. Oh, phew. Not so easy when you're a vegetarian, mind. Vegetarian? I've seen you eat smoky bacon crisps. I'm only human. Right. That's the pleasantries done with. Can we just play the first clip now? It was Get no sense out of us, sir. Give another gin sergeant and a good hard smack. Right oh. Better? Much. Good. Now tell us what happened. It was his armchair, sir. His lordship goes to park his rump, and all of a sudden these clamps wrap around his vitals, sir. His wrists, his ankles, his neck, all trips like a rat in a trap for rats and then they start turning all mechanical like his limbs bending further around than they have right to crunching and a snapping like a bundle of crispy twigs i see sir this sounds like the work of a certain sadistic doctor i'm inclined to agree sergeant but how could that be sir what with that cupboard of his 
Yes. I thought he'd been sent to the... Another realm? Yes, I recall. Then how the devil could he be back here and up to his old tricks? It can't be. It's impossible. And yet I have a niggling suspicion. You want to rub some appointment on that, sir? In this episode, we return to the world of Anvil's most bloated franchise. Did you say you swore vengeance? After three hit films, Dr Murder was a tasty little property that made money for the studio and a star of treacle-tongued actor Victor Spink. But producer Francis Hunt was losing faith in their cinematic cash cow. Or, as we vegetarians call it, a cash carrot. Hunt had penned the first script himself, based on a discarded French novella. And as so often happens with the movie medium, as Hunt's screenplays got further from the source material, the dafter they became, doomed to repeat the model that had made the original such a smash with audiences. What with Dr Murder dying in the first film, only to be reanimated by his deranged daughter in the second, Hunt had hoped to banish the dastardly physician for good by having him slip into another dimension in the third instalment, never to return to our physical plane. But a little thing like logic wasn't going to stop the studio milking this mother for all she was worth, so they demanded a fourth film from Francis Hunt. Though it would require some hefty persuasion. In order to sway Hunt to write The Curious Cupboard of Dr Murder, Beverly Anvil himself had slipped the creator several iced buns. No amount of lightly glazed dough could tempt Big Sissy Hunt to churn out another chapter in this swiftly swelling sw sagas. Swaga, no, what is, what is it? Victor Spink was also keen to keep the Doctor Murder train on its tracks. Saga, Sa yeah, it is Sa Saga. The former silver screen hero had finally returned to the limelight and wasn't about to let it slip now. Swagger? I'm doubting myself that. Spink's last star turn had been almost a decade earlier in the 1946 Hollywood sequel, The Reliant Robin Hood, which is often considered the most historically inaccurate movie in the whole of cinema. John, the King of Spain will pay for this. Armada, or no armada. And I will gladly help you, Robin, even if I must die for you. You are no fighter, William. You're a poet. Why not return to London and tell my story on the stage? That is your destiny. I can't go back to London. It's still on great fire. Nonsense. The world needs the quill of a young Shakespeare. Right, men? And what of me, Robin? I wish to stand with you also. Oh, Joan, this fight is not yours. Mais je t'aime, mon ami. And I like you lots, too. But the people of Ark need you, Joan, more than I. <laughs> Robin, the Scots are here. Hawkeye, we hear you plan to fight the Spaniards. Robin of Loxley, you shot that apple off the head of my son and saved his life. Never let it be said that William Wallace did not repay his debt of honor. Are you with us? Oh, you can rely on me. <coughs> 
and Victor Spink as friends in high places. He grew up in the Alps. But he was also a close associate of the studio's enigmatic consultant, Malcolm Gordon. Malcolm Gordon. I feel like we've mentioned him before. Possibly. The pair were fellow shipheads in the Rickmansworth branch of the 4th Midshipman's Order, an ancient fraternity of powerful men who indulge in clandestine rituals, secret handshakes and keeping girls out. Essentially, the middle-aged equivalent of a boy's treehouse. Or the Prime Minister's cabinet. Whoa, whoa, easy. None of that satire in here, Clint. Save it for your blog. Heck, I can't help but take a sidelong glance when opportunity knocks. Well, wear your bifocals and it shan't be an issue. The Order has a widespreading membership, including blokes from all walks of life, from judges of law to judges of baking competitions. Footballers, fishermen, war criminals, double-glazing salesmen. And even members of the royal family. Like I said, war criminals. I mean it, Clint. Keep your lukewarm takes on monarchy for the blog. In a very rare one-off, Warren actually managed to interview a former shiphead of the very same Rickmansworth chapter. Rare, they give interviews all the time. No, I know. The one-off is you leaving the house. Quite right, I did not like it. Due to his revelations, the man in question wished to remain anonymous. Rodney Blow, a pleasure to meet you. Oh, are you recording? You said, hmm? I don't want my name on this. Oh, uh, don't worry, Rod, I'll, I'll bleep it out in the edit. Promise. Yes, nobody will know I'm talking to Rodney Blore. I'll, I'll even disguise your voice. Oh, sure, I'm a tech whiz, me. That would be great. No prob, Rod. So, Mr Blore, I'm Roddy Choft to be speaking to former member of the 4th Midshipman's Order, Rodney Blore. We actually say lapsed. Eh? There is nothing former about membership to the FMO. Oh, uh, right. Sorry, uh, shall we start over? Uh, no. Tape's running now and I've got memorial corn beef to force down. Morning a loved one? My cat got burst. How tragic. It's never easy to lose a pet to bursting, and I should know. But uh, we shipheads don't think of the dead as departed, per se. More like... Lapsed? Exactly. Sounds nice. Being a shiphead is... was quite wonderful. And uh, you've agreed to reveal uh, details of this long-standing secret organisation, haven't you, Rodney Blore? Please stop saying my name. I'm going to bleep it out. But yes, I have conceded to tell you everything I can about the Brotherhood. Excellent. So... Um, how long were you a full-time shiphead for? I can't tell you that. Okay. Um, uh, how many branches of the FMO are there around the world? <laughs> I can't tell you that. What exactly are the ceremonies that you blokes perform in the order? I really can't tell you that. Is there anything you can tell me? I had to get two trams to get here. Um, yes. Uh, members refer to one another as seamen. Oh, very nautical. And we never use our real names. Oh. Instead, we take our first pet's name and the street we grew up on. Isn't that how you pick your porn star name? We did it first. So that would make me semen sticky grasp. Well, if your first pet 
was called Sticky. He was a tortoise, we say, from a glue factory. And if you grew up on... Grasp Avenue, yes. Exactly. And your seaman name was? I can't tell you that. Uh, perhaps you could explain the order's motto. Uh, Vindictem mayor orbis. Anyone raised on a diet of pig Latin could easily translate. Yes, but I'm a vegetarian, Rodney. Oh, I'm so sorry. The phrase loosely means, bring back the world unto me. Just what the frig does that mean? Well, uh, the order had its origins in the oldest days of maritime exploration. Maritime? What's that? Is that like a period of mariness? Not at all. In those days, sailors were often lost at sea, marooned on rocks or left adrift by their unjust crew members. (laughs) Legend has it such wayward souls encountered a being of sorts. Some say spirit, some say demon. The unofficial patron saint of forgotten men. Had these fellas been at the seawater when they saw these visions? Perhaps. But they all made it back to dry land. And these survivors felt imbibed with the spirit of their saviour, whoever or whatever it may be. Uh, They often sought retribution for those who had wronged them and gained untold glory in their lives. (laughs) Retribution, eh? These forgotten men found others like themselves, brethren of the spirit who saved them all from a watery grave. (laughs) They formed a bond that no outsider could comprehend. Thus, the fourth midshipman's order came to be. Is this why that little badge of yours is a trident? It's actually called a glorum. It's our symbol. It's the spear of reprisal, as wielded by our patron saint, the spirit of unsatisfied men. Oh, well, it's a uh, nice little tale. Probably just a load of guff. Hence my reason for lapsing. Though, if you are ever feeling lost, the Order is always very welcoming to prospective shipheads. All those in need of retribution. Pardon? Nothing, Rodney Blore. I really wish that you wouldn't keep... Um, we <laughs> believe the famous Victor Spink and one Malcolm Gordon were shipheads in your Rickmansworth chapter of the FMO. Can you confirm this? I can, actually. I'd like to change. Membership is no secret. We keep very public records of who signs up. It is only the inner workings of the order which are kept confidential. (laughs) Any activities undertaken by our brothers are of utmost concealment. What happens if you do spill any beans? Any brother who betrays the order is abandoned at sea. Uh, But that's a very old rule, uh, dating back centuries. (laughs) I imagine nowadays they... Send a nasty email. Oh. Uh, well, uh, I think that's all the time we've got, so thanks. If I recall rightly, Mr. Spink, or Seaman Fluffy Alpen, joined our branch in the early 50s. Um, Mr. Gordon was already on the books, I believe. Brothers help one another out, conduct deals behind closed doors, etc. Um, those Doctor Murder movies... We're just the beginning for those two. Right, um, got, got to be going, so... Godfrey Coots was also in the Rigmansworth division. He was an actor around that time too, but I believe he lapsed sometime in the 1960s. 
Never heard of him. So uh, I'll be off. Oh, you will remember to bleep my name out, won't you? Yes, Rodney Blaw. I'll bleeping bleep your bleeping name out. Thanks. You forgot to bleep his name out, didn't you? I knew there was something I'd forgot. Well, that was Rodney It's too late now, Warren. Thank you to Mr. Bluer, whose whereabouts are currently unknown. So please do contact his family if you have any information. What's with the face, Rufus? I've had a missed call from Doreen. What the frick does she want? Well, I don't know. Should I ring her back? Absolutely not. I mean, um, we are in the middle of an episode. Righto. So, it would seem that Spink and Gordon were like two peas in a pea case. No wonder then that the pair were keen to keep Dr Murder in cinemas. The studio consultant convinced Anvil to liberally tip a small fortune down the trousers of Francis Hunt to ensure a fourth and fifth screenplay. Mr Hunt, however, did request that Beverly not do the trouser tipping himself. Hunt retreated to his writer's retreat in the region of Redruth. His intention had been to muck out a couple of scripts in a scribbling frenzy over a fortnight of enforced isolation. But he had writer's block worse than a chemical toilet on a busy building site. Rufus? I'm sorry. Sorry, it's all this... All this talk of blockage puts me in mind of Doreen's U-bend. You're driving me round the bend. I, d- I don't mean to keep bringing her up, but she's like brine soup. Thick and sour? I was going to say, she can't be kept down. Right. The pages for The Murder of Dr Murder were sent in dribs and drabs from Cornwall to London by Hunt's own home-trained carrier pigeon, Jiminy. But Jiminy Pigeon's droppings were too few and far between for the studio. Now... This is where the story turns a wee bit grim. After weeks of missed deadlines and returned flights, Francis and Jiminy were both exhausted. Letters to his brother indicate the filmmaker's state of mind. Aside from his increasing anti-Zeppelin ramblings, Hunt saw the erosion of the Cornish coastline as a metaphor for his impending peril, the encroaching sea a symbol of the dark mass into which he would soon be plunged. Despite the fact his townhouse was five miles from the seafront. Now, this is where the story turns a wee bit grimmer. With scraps of scenes sent by Hunt becoming fewer and farer between, the studio consultant Malcolm Gordon chose to visit Hunt himself in person. He was reportedly driven down to Cornwall by Victor Spink in his modest minor. Whatever happened over that wet weekend, the two men returned to Acton on Monday morning with a completed script in hand and production began immediately. The murder of Dr Murder came out in February of 1959. Now, this is where the story turns a wee bit grimmest. The subsequent script came swift and steady from Francis Hunt, but nobody had seen, spoken or heard from the writer since Gordon's stay. Hunt's brother visited Redruth with infant daughter Cloaca in the summer of 1961, but there was nary a whiff of her uncle Sissy to be smelt. What's nary mean? I've no idea. Sounds sinister, though, doesn't it? Is that just because it sounds like scary? Just because things rhyme doesn't make them menacing. Well, I've never read a limerick I wasn't traumatised by. When questioned about Hunt's absence, Gordon said the screenwriter was taking some time to, quote, understand the inside of his own head. Easily satisfied with the explanation, Hunt's brother Mike decided to sell the property 
but noted the cellar door he recalled from the kitchen was missing. The twin mysteries of the missing hunt and his cellar door remain unsolved. What's the one thing that cannot be killed? Murder. Murder never dies. Step into my parlor. It is down a winding stair. I have many pretty things to show you when you are there. Here. Where did this waxwork museum come from? Can we go inside, Papa? Golly, ain't they realistic? I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you step in a moment, you shall behold yourself. Who could do this, Detective? A madman. He must be stopped, and before midnight. But why, sir? It's more dramatic. Sweet creature, welcome to my den. But you'll never leave again. <laughs> Dr. Murder rides again, coming to a picture house in your local vicinity. Well, what else are you going to watch? It was clear by now, this movie saga was losing all sense of continuity. Although Dr. Murder was murdered in the murder of Dr. Murder, he returned in this next film without any attempt of an explanation. Meaning some fans of the film consider it non-canonical. Well, there certainly weren't any canons in it. Dr. Murder Rides Again is also notably set in a different time period. While the previous four films take place in the Edwardian era, this movie is the villain roaming around in a more contemporary setting. Possibly to save money on the more elaborate costumes. The latest flick was indeed a new direction for the franchise. The new tone amped up the camp and ramped up the lamps. The lighting's very gaudy. Hey, there you go, Rufy. You just managed four rams in a row there. Could you just not call me that, please? It's, it's too painful. Reminds me of the night I met Doreen. I, I can't recall much of it, but it makes my mouth fill with tears. You mean saliva? No, that's my eyes, but only when they get hungry. Right. I miss the way she used to look at me. Stock still. Unblinking. Don't worry, Rufy. She won't be not blinking at you ever again. What's that mean? Another inconsistency in the fifth film is Godfrey Coots taking the role of Detective Graves. Coots had previously played Dr Murder's pesky investigator, Detective Greaves, in the other instalments. Though these characters were meant to be different people, names and casting make this all the more confusing. Yet Coots insisted that he have the parts. Would this be the same Godfrey Coots from the Midshipman's Order? Seems so. Which means he too would have been quite close to Spink. Until he lapsed from the Rickmansworth branch the year before. There are reports from crew on the set of this film who said that Coates often scolded Victor, angrily declaring he knew what the ageing actor was up to, whatever that might be, and would tell the world of his wicked plans. Was life beginning to reflect art? What secrets did Coots know about Spink? Were such plots plotted in the Palace of Testosterone that is the fourth midshipman's order? But just as Detective Greaves fails to reveal the identity of Dr Murder in the movie, Coots was unable to divulge the details of Spink's misdeeds. 
At the climax of the film, the investigator is bested by the villain. He's flayed, run through with a pike, and pulled apart by four horses. He later dies in hospital. Of flu. Godfrey Coots, however, found out he won an all-expenses-paid cruise around the world on the day he finished shooting. Even though the actor did not recall entering any raffle. Coots set sail within days, but was sadly lost at sea during the voyage. Without the detective's firm hands on the helm, the good ship Dr Murder was also steering full steam into choppy waters of its own. What a well-wrought analogy, Rufus. Oh, thanks. Doreen always said my metaphors were as lame as a limping turtle. Well, she's wrong, but your similes do need work. The next sequel, Dr Murder Goes Down Under, was not considered a classic. Turn that bloody radio off and come here. There's something funny going on in my outback. I told you not to eat those crab sticks, Sheila. No, put down your waterboard and come outside. What the bloody heck is it now? Does that kangaroo look funny to you? Well, I've never seen one holding a boomerang before. What's it bloody doing? <gasps> look out, Bruce! <laughs> Boomeranged in the neck, just like my father. Who could teach a roo to do something like that? Good afternoon, my dear. <laughs> Cripes! What a posh pom might you doing down under? I'm afraid it's you that'll be going down under. What are you doing with that didgeridoo? In your case, it's a didgeridoo-don't. <laughs> I never knew they were so sharp. The movie was banned in actual Australia and labelled a cultural hate crime. And not just for the fact that the studio had tried passing off bits of rural Surrey in the Aussie outback and the kangaroos were just dogs with tail extensions. The film may as well have been called Dr Murder Puts the Nail in His Own Coffin as the negative reviews poured in. Most notably, the minus two stars given by critic Archibald Blunt in The Daily Provocative who famously wrote, the worst fate suffered in this film of gruesome murders was that of the audience who had to sit through it. Anvil discovered what goes down under must also go down. And Victor Spink himself found himself caught in a Dr Murder-esque trap of his own. Though not one that ground his limbs in a meat grinder, it did make escape in the role of his creepy-slash-sexy physician nigh on impossible. Lovely use of the word nigh there, Warren. Very much. Even in his star turn on this telead for tea bags, Spink could not escape his connection to the wicked medical seducer, as you'll hear here. Would madam like a cup of tea? Tea? Heavens no! Get me a coffee. Are you sure, madam? It is Fleming's finest tea bags. Coffee! Would sir enjoy a Fleming's tea? Oh, I could murder a cup. Despite the diabolical decline in quality for the sixth Doctor Murder movie, the studio inexplicably agreed to follow up with another instalment. This time, Murder must do battle with another mega-monster franchise. Doctor Murder vs Godzilla opened in the summer of 1962. This co-production with Japanese studio Not-So-Shitty Films saw world authorities turn to the evil genius for help in defeating the giant lizard. 
I always thought Godzilla was more of a dinosaur. Well, dinosaurs aren't lizards. They're actually closer to chickens. We're not doing this again. What, so Godzilla's a chicken? No, he's more like a dragon. Uh, dragons have wings. Oh, and dinosaurs breathe fire, do they? Zip it. Oh, right. <clears throat> With Spink in the midst of a bitter divorce after his brief marriage to former co-star Penelope Smitten, the actor was reluctant to fly to Japan for filming. This led to scenes between scientists and Dr Murder being shot thousands of miles apart and then poorly edited together. But inconsistent backdrops and mismatched eyelines were not the only issues. Spink's usually delicious performance was turning a bit sour. Like Doreen's brine soap. Taste never quite leaves you. You may recall Victor's ability to perform most acts on cue, but during this shoot, Spink could barely remember his cues on cue. He began shouting lines out of order and seemingly at random, meaning scenes had to be shot 64 to 73 times over, as this brief cutting found in the sole of John Prescott's snakeskin boots demonstrates. Take 66, everybody, and action. They say Godzilla is our cast against the hubris of a man. He comes I to... I fear no monster. Wait! Victor, you have to wait for Ken to finish his line, remember? Are you sure? Yes. And again. Action. They say Godzilla. I fear no monster. No! Wait for the cue, Victor. I fear... I fear... No. 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 Uh, no. Wait for the line. Go on, Ken. Quickly. He comes to take what humanity stole from nature. Could you fight nature? Oh, I could murder a cop. Cut! Over 900 kilometres of film reel were sent to the editors after the gruelling five-week shoot. A considerable amount, considering Dr Murder only appears on screen for a total of 23 minutes. Reams of the offcuts were actually used to help create the M40 motorway. It's said that there's a stretch of road between Banbury and Oxford where if you're driving at exactly 43 frames per second in the middle lane, you can look out your right-hand mirror at the tarmac and watch a sequence where Spink beheads and then reheads a dummy scientist. The finished flick was such a disaster, the executives at Not So Sheety Films all quit for bringing dishonour to their families and went into self-exile. The newly formed Not So Sheety Monks were like... Holy guacamole! Uh, no, not quite. They'd be more like, oh, Fabi, what's Abby? No, look. It's another missed call from Doreen. But she's left a voicemail. Don't play it. Hello, Ruffy. It's your girl, Doreen. I don't blame you for not picking up. Listen, I feel rotten about last week. Really horrid. Even the skin on my backside's come out in a lumpy rash. I keep finding your kecks in my drawers and whiffing at them. I guess I'm saying I miss you, Buttercup. And I want to make amends. So I've been to an old specialist friend of mine and I've got a little someone here who wants to be reacquainted with your mate, Darren. I figured you're in that shed of his, so I'm on the bus down to see you now. What are you looking at? No, I will not put my bastard mask on. Do you know what this means? She's a public health violation. Who's Darren? No, she means you, Warren. It's a lazy name recollection. 
she said she had someone to reacquaint me with. Is she saying she's somehow unburst Damien the cat? If she has, I feel pretty rotten. Why? What have you done? Uh, n- nothing. Well, she's not here yet, so can we get on before she shows up? She misses me. She sniffs at my kecks. I heard. Anvil had hoped to redeem the floundering franchise in 1963 with The Jungle Drums of Dr Murder. But the production halted when the giant spider puppet budget got way out of hand. It seemed the silver-tongued rogue was at the end of his evil doings. But Spink himself had the capital notion of repurposing Hunt's latest script to suit a society with a new burgeoning interest in the stars. With the space race in full swing, audiences of the early mid to mid to later mid-60s had developed a real hankering for sci-fi movies. Uh, and we've been reassuringly informed that sci-fi is short for science fiction. Does that mean that Wi-Fi is short for science fiction? I doubt it. Doreen says all science is fiction. The only thing she believes in is bingo. Anvil gave one final stab at their prized pig. Earl uh, Parsnip, if you're vegetarian. Their eighth and final film was the 1964 interstellar flop Dr Murder in Space. The highly ambitious movie was a cost-cutting mixture of scenes shot from the jungle drums of Dr Murder and sections of a Russian public infomercial about what life is going to be like when they reach the moon. Though the heavy dubbing does fail to mask some of the Soviet propaganda, as you may notice in this clip. Ah, good morning, darling. Was another fine moon morning. For comrades of Mother Russia. Coffee? Yes, dear. I love how delicious. Freedom from capitalism. Tastes up here. And I love this zero gravity. I threw that ball for the dog Lyra. yesterday and he's still leaping to grab it. <laughs> Honey. We must all work like dogs for glory of nation. It's what I always say. <laughs> Can you hear that, darling? It sounds like someone's over in the moon forest. Take that and that. Curse these giant moon gold spiders. You wait and see. It's not only the moon who has a dark side. Ha <laughs> <coughs> ha! Goodness me. It really is quite a difficult watch. Doreen got me one of them. The minute Anne goes the wrong way. By the film's third ever screening, the only person in the cinema to watch it was a lonely usher who used the empty theatre to practice necking. Doreen's got a lovely neck. So many folds of skin. Yes, I'm sure it's not gone all flaky and rotten. You what? Spink was desperate to do another picture, but Anvil refused to make any more Doctor Murder films. Even his pal Malcolm Gordon failed to see the actor in any other role. Spink had made his coffin, and now he must be buried in it. The rights to the character of Doctor Murder were bought by Boiling Eagle Pictures, who were in need of a new it after their Killer Zeppelin trilogy had run its course. Beck wanted to reboot the blockbuster series with a fresh new face, but everyone who auditioned for the title role ended up with chronic gout. It was Victor Spink, or no one. 1969's The Terrible Trial of Dr Murder was considered so terrible, the head of the studio personally apologised to everyone as they left the cinema. Spink even went on to feature in the Bollywood musical remake from 1971, 
dances with the no-good Doctor Man. Returning to London the following year to star in Doctor Murder AD 1972. His final cinematic venture came in the 1975 dance thriller Doctor Murder, Prince of Darkness, King of Disco. Which is arguably the best film Spink ever made. Doctor Murder makes a brief cameo waving a hacksaw in a music video for the 1983 song Waving and Drowning by the pop group The Sweatbands. It's not clear why. In 1988, American studio Satan's Alibi were looking to reboot the franchise as a teen slasher, but the project was abandoned when the now 80-year-old Victor Spink insisted only he was contractually allowed to play the role. But Spink did relinquish, formally retiring as Dr Murder, but not before funding the bafflingly straight-to-VHS Dr Murder Formally Retires in 1994. For nigh on 50 years, Spink had portrayed this doctor who'd gone from dastardly villain to laughingstock to disco champion over five long decades. Whilst we have access to his later flicks, his golden era as Dr Murder in the original Anvil classics was lost in the studio fire that burnt the lot in 1968. When asked why he continued to play the part in his final radio interview, Spink said the following. I make my little movies for the same reason other people, the real people, have children, create offspring. They are my legacy. Nobody wants to leave this mortal coil without one. Like a parent places something of themselves in their progeny, I too have given my soul to these films in the hope that some part of me will live on, perhaps, dare I say, forever. And if people in the future watch my pictures and enjoy what I do, then I can never truly be gone, and then I will have mastered immortality and conquered death once and for all. He passed away three days later. He was killed by a Zeppelin. And that, dear listeners, brings us to the end of the saga of Dr. Murder. Now, remember, if you'd like to... Oh! What in the big blue Jesus of Clitheroe is that? It's door. I know it's the door. Someone's trying to chop it down. No, I mean, it'll be door. She likes to make an entrance. It's Dory! Oh, what's that she's got? Door, your merkin's on show. Don't be daft, Rufy. This is... Damien! It's never. But I thought he burst. Cats have nine lives. Everybody knows that. I've got a friend down the creme who can fix up pets like this, no bother. He looks better than ever. There's no crusty gunk in his eyes anymore. No, but they are glowing red. He might be a bit temperamental at first, but it's just the bursting reversal. Oh, Warren, you've dropped something. Oh, ignore that. So, you said you missed me? Happen I did. Can you reach my back? I am peeling like mad. Oh, it's a pin badge, Warren. Oh. Is that a trident? Oh, you must be an agony buttercup. It's a gloram, actually. It's a symbol of retribution. My skin's crispier than the dark side of a deep fat fryer. Warren, did you join the fourth midshipman's order? Oh, it smells like it too. I wanted my world back. Or at least a bit of vengeance. What are you on about, Warren? I need to sort out Doreen's crispy back. And just how did this lady's back get so crispy, Warren?
I swapped her aloe vera for toxic plant food, okay? You happy now? Not me. I look like a shedding snake. You owe my buttercup an apology for making her so crusty. Oh, I'm sorry, Doreen. It was all for Damien, but now he's alive again. Don't worry. It's not the first time somebody's tampered with me ablutions. Right. Shall we end it there, then? Doreen, may I have the honour of rubbing lotion on your flaky torso? Oh, Rufy. Take care. It's like caressing Weetabix. So long as it's you I'm caressing. I love you, Doreen Midgley. Um, <clears throat> we've been the Cinema Society. Uh, Warren? My face, Damien, no! Rufus? Will you marry me? And I'm Clint. And this has been... Yes! One from the... Hang on, what did she just say? Vaults! Oh, shit. One from the Vaults is a co-production between the Cinema Society and Medium Reproductions. It was written and performed by Joel Heritage, Jacob Lovick and Jack Robertson, with additional performances by Cassie Atkinson, Peter Dewhurst, Emma Halstead, Karen Hobbs, Ferry Hunt, Tamsin Kelly, Sam Lake, Frankie Spires, Elliot Thomas and Ken Thompson, and edited by Jacob Lovick. The music is by Cyclone Marlowe. It is based on an original idea created with Chaz Redhead. Special thanks to Alexander Fox and Brian O'Sullivan for their help on this episode. You can follow us on at Cinema Society on Twitter, email us on cinemasociety at gmail.com, and remember cinema is always spelt with an S.